Alright, this morning we're going to begin a new series called The Bible in Color. The Bible in Color. Now what I mean by that is that almost inescapably for, for you as well as for me, throughout the years, as 21st century Americans, when we read New Testament letters, our struggle is to read the text through the lens of our personal church experiences throughout the years. As we read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and so forth, it is our tendency to envision Western cathedrals with lofty steeples in our minds. When, re when in reality, the majority of these letters have been going to ancient churches, mostly in house churches. When we read letters in Scripture, it conjures up mental images of American towns and cities where we've spent our lifetime. When the letters written to these people had happened over 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, in ancient Turkey, in Jerusalem, as well as in Rome. When we read New Testament letters, what oftentimes gets in our way is what is known of as proof texting. Now what proof texting is, is something that we all know. It's when we see a person or when we ourselves take one verse here, we go way over here to another place and we take two or three passages there. We combine what we read and we build a theology around it while ignoring everything else Scripture is saying about that on the contrary. When we proof text, what we have in our minds is when we approach Scripture, we think to ourselves either um, directly or indirectly. Where we think to ourselves, how can I make this text line up with my own church traditions and agendas? I've experienced that that is a dangerous way to read Scripture. Now, have you ever known anybody who... who had taken this approach as it pertains to immersion or to baptism. Where I will go to where where I will go to the thief on the cross over here, I will combine that with the Philippian jailer who's asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he says, in response, how you must believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And they combine that with John 3.16, and all of a sudden a theology is constructed around this. Many people say that, that you don't have to be baptized because of all of this. And they ignore everything else Scripture has to say about how necessary baptism is. I think that we've all experienced this before. And I could go off on, on all the people in the world who do that with baptism. But what I want to accomplish in this series is something that is very hard. Something that is very uncomfortable for, for you as well as for me, I imagine. And that is in this series. I want to go to all of those places in Scripture, all of those other passages, where we in our own tradition may be doing the exact same thing without even knowing it. So proof texting gets in the way many times. But something else which, which also gets in our way is our emotions as we read I mean, as we read the text, we want to do what God says. Amen? Amen. I think. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, we want to do what God says. And yet many times as we read a certain passage that is giving us difficulty, we want it to say something else. We, we want it to say what we want it to say. Or maybe sometimes it's what, what we want our mom and dad, what they had believed. We want that to line up with what our parents had believed all those years. And yet these two things, it keeps our comprehension of the scriptures in grainy black and white. When we could be reading the text in vivid HD color. These things keep us splashing around in the kiddie pool with our pink flamingo floaties on. When when we open up God's word, we could be doing backstrokes in the ocean. I read one writer who says this. His name is Eugene. Um, and he says this. He says that a Eugene, or, or <laughs> rather, he says that a Jewish rabbi I once studied with, he would often say to me, for us Jews, studying scripture is more important than even obeying it in some instances. And that's because if we do not understand Scripture rightly, then you will obey it wrongly. And our obedience will be actually a disobedience if we do not properly understand what we are reading. See, this is very important. Well, last week we had seen how the perception of women in the church in, in, in many places for a very long time has been something like how women are very important, women are very spiritual, but they're not exactly as important or as spiritual as men are in the church. How many times men are seen as greater thans, where women are seen as lesser thans. And I think a big reason for this in churches for a very long time has been in a couple of verses in Scripture where it says that women are to be silenced. So I would like to begin this morning by, by, by looking at each one of those verses. And the very first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we will begin this morning. As we continue seeing just exactly what scripture has to say about women in the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and beginning in verse 34, here's what we read. From the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 34 that the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they and if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So we have this verse, and then we have another verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, and starting in verse 11, here's the other verse that, that we associate with women in silence within the church. First, um, there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. There it says that a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And yet I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but she is to remain quiet. And that is God's word. These things were written to churches. Now that passage 
And I would like to go back to that passage first in 1 Corinthians 14. Whereas Paul says how women are to be silent, what this means in the original language is that she must keep everything to herself. It means that you must not make a sound. That is what this literally means in the original language. And yet I've been around so many Christians, though, who would read passages like this, and they would do exactly what we object to in others as pertains to baptism. I've seen so many people, and I've been one even um, many years ago in the past, or I have gone to these two passages, and I have constructed an entire theology around it while ignoring everything else Scripture says about women. Here's what is very important as we view these passages, as well as any, any other passage, is that when we read ancient um, Scripture, ancient texts, rather than only taking one or two isolated passages, it's very important that we also read everything that has come before that verse. And once we read everything that has come before that verse, we also likewise need to read everything which comes after that verse in, there in the section. We need to ask ourselves questions like, who is being written to? When is this being written? Why are these things being said to these people in these churches? And as I'm discovering, a very important question that we also must ask ourselves as we read the text is this. What did this mean for the original people who would have received this letter? What is the historical context of this letter? And I'm discovering that the more that, that I am asking these questions as I study, and the more that I am having all of these questions answered as I read, really the more clear clear, all of this starts coming into view. You see, 1 Corinthians was not postmarked to the Davis Avenue Church of Christ in Macon, Georgia in 1996. These letters were ancient texts written to specific people in specific churches, in specific places, dealing with specific problems in their own time. When we read the epistles, yes, we are reading scripture. But it's also true that when we're reading the epistles, we are also rummaging through somebody else's mail. And I'm reminded of that, that um, scene in The Wizard of Oz, that, that it changed the way that we see movies forever. Where we see a house that has Dorothy in it, and it crashes after a storm, after a tornado had gone through. And up until that point, Dorothy has spent her entire life living in a black and white world. And yet once she opens up that door and she leaves that house, she closes that door behind her, she steps into this vibrant, vivid, technicolor world. And I just can't imagine what that was like for the very first people who were actually sitting there in that theater the very first time The Wizard of Oz had been seen in 1939. Where your entire life you've seen movies only in black and white. And yet now, all of a sudden, about 20 minutes into the film, all of a sudden, a door opens up. And now you see color on the screen for the very first time in your life. You see, this is significant because this is how it feels. This is what the experience is 
when we opened up Scripture, and now we have eyes with which to see every single syllable dripping with full, vivid HD color. I don't know about you, but I just got to the point in my, my walk with Christ where I grew very tired of living in a black and white proof texting world. I reached a point where, where I was tired of being a black and white preacher who was only going to a verse here and a verse there and ignoring everything else that Scripture has to say about it. And yet there is good news for us this morning. And that good news is that in a world of black and white proof texting and being dogmatic with God's Word, there is a doorway that lets us see the words of life in full, vivid, HD technical. And this morning, I, I at least pray that we will experience this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And yet in order for us to, to do this, as we open up 1 Corinthians, we must mentally go to the city of Corinth. And now, of course, Corinth was a, a Greco-Roman city. And we need to understand that this was a very, very dark place. It's a place where, where, where sexual promiscuity had ran rampant. You had cults that had been taking place in temples. You had parties that had gotten very much out of control on a daily basis. Drunkenness. Sexual activity that I could... I could I've described to you, but it's better not. It is so grotesque and corrupt. What we need to understand about Corinth is that Corinth made Las Vegas look like Salt Lake City. This is not, not a pretty place. And yet this is the past that, that everybody in this church has come out of. Because what we read in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you were idol worshippers. You were at one time homosexual, some of you. How you were drunks, you were thieves, you were swindlers, and so forth. Paul says, such were some of you before you came to a knowledge of this truth. And so this is where, where this church is coming from. And yet we also need to look at this church at large because there are all kinds of problems at this church in Corinth. As we see early on in this letter, there are, are, are many divisions going on in this church. This is a church that, that still does not truly love each other. Some in this church have even gone to court against each other in the world. There is all kinds of problems at this church. There are sexual sins which are being swept underneath the rug. Lord's Supper is being contaminated and corrupted. I mean, you... You name it. And that was probably going on at this church of Corinth. And so as Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he's putting out over a hundred fires left and right. And for a long time, I used to think that, that 1 Corinthians 14, how the context was just about, well, it's a chapter which says that our women cannot speak ever. And yet, as we actually open up this chapter and we read all the other verses, we can see Paul is speaking about many other things as well, in addition to that. Starting at verse 23, this is where we find really what the context is in this chapter. Verse 23 says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, 
Will they not also say that you are mad or crazy? And yet if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Then in verse 26 is where we start seeing exactly what the context is. Where Paul says, what is the outcome then, brethren? That when you assemble, each one has a psalm, each one has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. He says, let all things be done for edification. So what we see first is that he begins speaking about those who in this time had been speaking in tongues. Tongues, as we see elsewhere in this chapter, were a temporary thing for, for all others as a sign for all of those who were not believers. And yet he, um, he begins speaking about those who spoke in tongues in verse 27, where he says that if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most, and each in turn, and one must be an interpreter. Notice in verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself as well as to God. And so right off the bat, we can see how women are not the only ones who are to be silent in this church. And yet, in fact, if there is anybody who is speaking in tongue but does not have an interpreter, Paul says that he must be silent. He must not make a sound in that sense. And really the reason why is because Paul does not want chaos in his church. Paul does not want any outsiders coming into this church thinking these guys are out of their minds. I mean, they are just crazy. They are drunk. It's like the Tower of Babel all over again within um, Christ's church. And yet he goes on and he also speaks about exactly how many people might prophesy, starting in verse 29. Verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. He says, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one, notice, must keep silent. He says, for you all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. And then really, we absolutely see what the context is, it, um, is in addition to the verse we read earlier. Here is the context. For God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of peace as in all of the churches of the saints. And so here Paul says that, that all of those in the church who will stand up and prophesy, how we don't need everybody speaking all at once, but just one at a time. And if you can't do that, he says, let them be silent. And usually when we hear that word of, of, of one who is a prophet, we almost always have the image in our mind of a person who is announcing what will happen in the future. And yet the main meaning of this word, prophecy, is simply speaking on behalf of God. It is enlightening other people in the church. It is admonishing them. It is encouraging them, and so forth. Then, once Paul has mentioned those who speak in tongues and those who prophesy, then he starts speaking about women in verse 33 or verse 34, rather. He says once again that the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves just as the law also says. 
If they are desiring to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And so what we see here is that this chapter really is not exclusively about women. But it is about having order within Christ's body in the church. And I read this really interesting quote by a theologian whose name is Craig Keener. Here's what he says about this chapter that might give us even more insight into exactly what is going on. He says, informed listeners customarily ask questions during lectures in this society, but it was considered rude for the ignorant to do so. Although by our modern day standards, literacy was, was very low in antiquity, women were far less trained in the scriptures and public reasoning than men were. In general, they achieve a given level of education, only perhaps maybe 10% as much as the men would receive. As for Jewish women, Jewish women could hear the Old Testament scriptures read to them, but girls were not generally taught um, reciting it as the boys were. Then he says something very interesting where he says, Paul does not expect these uneducated women to refrain from learning. Indeed, much of their culture has kept them from learning is precisely what the problem is. Instead, Paul provides the most progressive model of his day. How their husbands are to go against their, their very culture and to respect the intellectual capabilities of their wives and give them a private instruction within their own homes. Paul wants them, in other words, to stop interrupting those assemblies and the teaching period of the church service, because at least until they, they knew more, they were distracting everybody and they were disrupting church order. And so really, what the main point is, it's not so much women must keep silent forever and ever and ever, but the main point is to a church that is spiraling out of control. Paul is establishing order and he is 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 showing the difference between those who had received education and those who had not yet received their education. And so then what we're left with is this. And here's where it gets really hard for, for, for you as well as for me, growing up a certain way. We have a bunch of uneducated women who would not have received the exact same education as the men have. And in an atmosphere which was common for the uneducated, hijacking learning places with relentless questioning, rather than allowing all of, those, all of those interruptions to continue taking place and hijacking the church, Paul now is saying something that is completely unheard of in this culture, where he says, husbands, instruct your wives at home. I mean... To 21st century eyes, for, for a lot of people who are not Christians, they might read this and say Paul is subjecting women. But actually what Paul is doing is, really Paul is elevating women in the home. Where all the people in this culture could have looked at the church and said, can you believe those Christians? They even educate their own wives. And they even allow women to have, and I'm going to extend it, education. And here's where it also gets very hard for us. Women are to be silent, chapter 14. Well, we come into chapter 11, 
And here's what we must wrestle with. We're in chapter 11 and in verse 2 it says, Now I praise you because you remembered me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. He says, But I want you all to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Notice verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying is disgracing her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair shaved, let her cover her own head. And this has been a weakness of mine in the past. This has been one of those verses where I was just as guilty of sweeping underneath the rug, just pretending like it was not in Scripture, and not going, not going anywhere near it, because, well, it says in chapter 14, women must keep silence. See, this is where it gets very hard. Now, Paul mentions women who are prophesying and praying in the same context as the, the um, church assembly. Now, we might think, well, wherever these women are praying and prophesying, it's not in church. And yet again, in the context, this is in church order and church service. And so it's here where we see that, that Scripture isn't exactly as neat or as black and white as we, we might imagine that it is. It's going to require a lot of study. It's going to require wrestling with that text, asking hard questions, no matter how much it goes against where we've come from in the church. Here, Paul also mentions a veil, which, which, which women in the society wear all the time. Now, the reason why he says that how it's a disgrace for a woman not to have that veil is because for a woman to not have that veil there in a public place, this was the equivalent to a married woman now walking into a bar without her wedding ring. Because when you're a woman in this age without a veil on your head, you are announcing consent for your husband. You are announcing your availability to every single man who lays eyes upon you. Really what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians, more than anything else, is that he is guarding this church's reputation amongst those who were not Christians. Paul is looking at the church and he's saying that, that I don't want Christ's church to look anything like this world and this society in terms of women. We do not want to be mistaken for all these other cults or for all these cults out there in the world. This is the context of 1 Corinthians. Well, we might also ask the question, well, how about the other verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Well, in order for us to, to really understand what is going on there, we must do the same exact thing. We must mentally go to the city of Ephesus, which is where this letter had originally been received by a young evangelist um, who Paul is writing to there, um, whose name is Timothy. Now, what we need to know about Ephesus is that Ephesus was yet another Greco-Roman city. 
And this was another church that was being more impacted by the culture than the culture was being impacted by the church. There in Ephesus, you, you had one of the wonders of the world, which was a temple to a goddess whose name was either Diana or Artemis. Now, Artemis was this goddess. It was a cult where they worshipped a moon goddess of fertility. If you had not yet had a child, if you had a business and it was not very successful, if you had a field that was not quite successful in crops, you would go to this temple and you would offer sacrifices of fertility to this goddess in hopes that, that hopefully she would help you succeed and flourish in any given way. And so this goddess was a female god who had an all-female um, priest um, system. If you were a male and you wanted to be a priest in the temple of Artemis, you would have to be castrated. And so this was how severe it was in terms of gender um, there in that temple, in, um, there in the city of Ephesus. And yet also what you had in Ephesus was this movement of, um, there in the first century known as the New Roman Women. Now what this movement had been all about is that in the first century, as, as this letter is being written, Roman wives all over this Roman Empire have been showing consent for their marriages, and especially for men in general. They would throw away all of their veils, and they would start wearing the exact same see-through clothing of the local um, harlots and prostitutes. They would wear expensive clothes and gold and jewelry and braided hair. Even though they were uneducated, they would storm into a dinner parties all over the place with the hopes of making a disruption in very loud and vulgar ways meant to create disorder and to offend other people. This was their way of rebelling against men and many times even um, who they had been married to. And it reached such a dramatic point that the women hated the idea of traditional womanhood so much that they began terminating their own pregnancies. This was what was going on as Paul writes this letter to the young evangelist Timothy. This is the background that these Christians were exposed to on a daily basis in their society. And as we experience in our own time and day and age, there is a pressure for the world to conform, or rather for the church to conform to the world. Paul is writing, I believe, with, with really all of these things in mind. Now armed with, with the historical context, let us read 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Where Paul says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to also adorn themselves, notice, with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to God's. A woman must, must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, and yet I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. 
And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Then notice verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, in love, in sanctity, and with self-restraints. Now armed with the historical context of exactly who Paul is writing to, now can we see why Paul is telling all of these women not to dress a certain way? Can we see why he's mentioning how important it is to have children and to bear kids? Can we see why he's telling women who are very uneducated in this age that they are not to teach or to exercise authority over men like these women in this culture have been doing on a daily and on a nightly basis? You see, Paul is guarding the reputation of these Christian women. Paul is guarding the reputation of this church as a whole. Just like it was in Corinth, Paul does not want this church ever being confused with the worshipers of, of, of Artemis or these women in the new Roman woman movement. And so regardless of where we are in our minds right now, I imagine we are all over the place right now hearing all of this. Once we have heard all of these things, we have some, some very hard things to face. And that's because if a, a woman, or if Paul himself were to step into this assembly this morning, it would be quite contrary to this. Because if a first century Roman Christian were to see how we dress now, in our eyes, it is respectable to God. It is proper, it is showing reverence to God in the way that we dress now. And yet to this culture, they would have looked at the, the same exact dress of now, and they would have seen something completely and utterly inappropriate and disgraceful for a Christian to address because of what he is teaching them here. And in our minds we think, well, this was a far different time and a far different place. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yet here's where it gets hardest of all. It's that if we are to take women being completely silent in the church as something that is literal and universal for all times and for all places, then it would also be true that every single woman in the church must grow their hair long. That every single woman in the church must wear a veil, both to worship as well as anywhere outside their home. It would be true that, that, that no woman is to wear fancy clothing or gold or, or even braided hair. It would be true that from the moment that a woman sets foot inside this place, they must be completely silent the entire time that they're in here. They cannot sing as the church sings. They are not to make any comments during class. They are not to even cough or to sneeze. They, they must not make a single sound. And everybody in this church, if we will take this literally, then we must also completely do away with, with hugs and with handshakes, and we must exclusively greet every single person here with a kiss on each cheek. Or maybe, just maybe, these chapters are not exactly as black and white as we might think. Maybe, just maybe, 
These were specific commands to specific Christians living in a specific house church, in a specific society, in a specific time, 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. Really, regardless of how we think walking out of this message, really the greatest question that we must ask ourselves as we study Scripture is, what is most important of all as I read this text? I think of the church, we, we often make, make the mistake of obsessing over our Sunday morning assembly. But what is most important is the assembly happening outside of these doors every single day. I'm speaking about the worship service of, of Monday through Saturday, which is the Christian life. Both of which we find women taking an active part in, in Scripture. As you might imagine, this was a hard message for me to preach as a minister. But my intentions for bringing this to our attention this morning, it's not to impose anything on this church. It's not to provoke anybody to any kind of, of bad response. But rather, I am doing this so that I can stress the absolute imperatives that whatever we believe, spiritually speaking, let it only be what we believe once we have intensely studied, once we have wrestled with every syllable of the text, and once we have arrived at our own belief, not the belief of our mom and dad, not the belief of me, not the belief of anybody else in this world but us as we read and study God's Word. We, we must have our own faith. We must have our own beliefs as we read Scripture. It begs a very interesting question, which is, do you have to go to a seminary in order to understand Scripture? Well, of course not. But I believe that what God is inviting all of us to, myself included, is to go deeper in the text, is to ask all of those hard questions, is to go further than we've ever gone before. I, you know, I'm discovering that 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 every time that I do this, I'm going to verses and the chapters of Scripture I thought that I knew. And yet when I ask all of these questions now, all of a sudden light bulbs are going off. And I'm seeing it in color now. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be overnight. It's going to hurt at times. It's going to go against everything that we previously thought before. And yet it's always going to be worth it. So as we close, I just want to, to, to invite us to just, just one simple thing. And that is this week, whenever we read Scripture, let us ask ourselves, what comes before this verse that I'm wrestling with? What comes after this verse that I'm wrestling with? Specifically, who was this written to and why was this written to them? What did this mean for the original readers who would have received this letter? And then and only then, we ask ourselves, what does this have to do with us in the world of today? I believe that the more that we do this, we will feel just like Dorothy, as she opens up that door to a whole new world of technicolor in the city of Oz. In a world of proof texting. In a world of a black and white scriptural argumentation, dogmaticism, 
there is a doorway where, where once we enter through, we can see God, and we can see Scripture, and we can see the lost, and we can see Christ's church, no longer in black and white, and yet now in full HD color. I'd like to go to God in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, as a minister of your word, there is a temptation to just come up here and preach softball sermons, tell everybody what they already know, and just send them on their merry little way. And yet, Father, I want to be the kind of minister that 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 will wade into those hard waters. That will ask questions even that might make me uncomfortable. Lord, everybody here wants to do what your word has to say. I pray, Father, that, that as we read your word, that we can go deep and that we can fall deeper in love with you as a result. 